Have you ever wondered why some people, ideas, and careers advance rapidly? We discover the mindsets and the actions behind them. Today we have Silicon Valley veteran and CEO of DemandGen International, David Lewis. Uh, David was known as the youngest VP of marketing in Silicon Valley at the tender age of 25. Is the founder of Resounding, uh, which was later acquired by GameSpy, uh, and now serves as an advisor to several startups in the Bay Area, including LeadSpace, Engageo, uh, and OpenPrize. Uh, I understand back in, uh, I think, 1990 it was, you started your career with Microsoft as an account executive, and it wasn't long after that that uh, you moved on to a VP of marketing with a startup in Silicon Valley. You were the youngest VP at the time. Would really love to just dig into that experience overall and young age and some of the things you learned in the process overall. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having me on the program. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my journey. It was interesting because when I look back in life, and see where I am today, it seems like all the dots connected, you know, so linearly, like one thing led to another. But at the time, of course, it didn't seem like that at all. But when you look in the rearview mirror, and you're like, okay, I was in school, and I was studying marketing, and a professor said to me, um, you ready for your career? Because I was graduating. I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited to go into marketing. And he goes, well, I have some advice for you. And I actually thought, Alex, that he was going to be offering me a job at his agency in Los Angeles. Yeah. And I said, what, what's yeah. the advice? And he goes, it's this, it's uh, you should go into sales. And like at that moment, I'm like, is he telling me I suck at marketing or so I'm, I'm listening. And uh, cause I'd been done doing really well in the class. And he's like, well, you're so passionate about marketing and you want to become, you know, as you said, like one of the world's best marketers. So if you want to really be good at marketing, you've got to, sell and find out why people buy. And it was the best advice of my career, but it didn't, you know, that reaction in the class, I remember standing in the back of the room, you know, just getting ready to walk out the door to my next class and tells me this. So anyway, long story short, yeah, I, I got very fortunate and joined Microsoft. And that came from me being entrepreneurial. I had started a Macintosh user group in Los Angeles. So I've always been an entrepreneur, Alex. In fact, I was a DJ in college and started my own DJ business, right? So there's a trend of me being this entrepreneur, but really in the first parts of my career, I was entrepreneurial in my role, right? So I worked for established companies and it wasn't until 1999 that I really started my first company, which wasn't this one. But anyway, the, the tenure at Microsoft was great, but I learned early on, you know, that was too big of a company for me. Like it was great yeah, environment, yeah. but, but Alex, it was just a huge company and moved very slow even back in, in that time. And so as you said, I progressed and I worked really hard. And that's something that I just have to stress so much. I mean, there's there's so much talk these days about kind of like hustle porn. And I'm, I'm not a big fan of like work yourself to death uh, for sure. But nothing comes easy and there's no lottery ticket that you're going to, you know, discover. You've got to really work hard and get to where you want to be. And, and you know, no matter what age you are, that's that's true if you haven't reached your goals. And so that journey through marketing, like you said, growing up here in Silicon Valley, and working for not startups, but you know, like hundred person company uh, size. I, I worked at Fairlawn, and I grew up there, like you said, and uh, took that company public at age twenty eight. Uh, you know, as their head of marketing, and was given opportunities that, candidly, my resume didn't justify. But I was a known entity in the company, and I'd been there 
for several yeah. years. So it wasn't until after that, long after that, that I finally said in in 2007 when I started this company. And this is this was the company that I founded and was the the investor and still is to this day. And I've learned so much over the past 12 years. Okay. Yeah. So I guess, um, you know, moving into uh, roles at these startups and being part of a smaller company, it was just, you know, being able to impact the organization in a deeper way kind of appealed to you. Um, but I mean, obviously that's, that's not easy as a young guy, you only have so much experience. And so, I mean, maybe talk about those first couple of months uh, with that, uh, in that initial VP role. I mean, how did that go? I can imagine there was some adjustment going from kind of an account executive sales centered role into having all that responsibility. Um, how did you adapt to that? Did it take long or kind of just come naturally as far as being able to strategically guide the organization's marketing sure. objectives? Yeah. Well, like I said, Microsoft, I realized that even though it was a great environment, learning environment, and I was having tremendous success, I knew it was the wrong environment for me. And so some examples of that was, you know, I would bring an idea to that company, like this sounds funny because we today we have the Microsoft office. But I said to my boss, I said, you know, we sell Microsoft Word and we sell Microsoft Excel and we sell Microsoft Windows and we sell Microsoft PowerPoint and we sell Access, which was the database. And none of these products by at the time were the incumbents that they are today. It was like Lotus 1, 2, 3 and DBase and, and WordPerfect. So my advice to her was, I'm like, you guys are always asking how things are going out there. I think we should sell this as a bundle. Like, I think we should get one standardization and get the mm -hmm. IT department. You know, I was selling to aerospace, right? So you had to go through IT and get everything approved and blessed. And it was a long procurement process because you're asking them to make a dramatic change to switch from those apps to these new ones. Huge costs. And she goes, you know, David, I see where you're going. And yes, it would be probably an easier sale to get that standardization. But a company like Microsoft is never going to change its strategies based on that feedback. Like we charge three to four hundred dollars per product and, you know, the revenue implications and others. So, you know, I don't mind you sharing these ideas with me, but kind of like her message was like, keep them to yourself. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. holy crap, like I'm at a company that doesn't want to hear my yeah. ideas. And, you know, again, I was a 22 year old young kid who probably thought I knew everything, which I of course didn't, but I just genuinely authentically wanted to give ideas. Um, and when I had dinner with Bill Gates for the very first time, what was felt like maybe a couple of months after that. And he asked me, so how's the job going? I kind of wanted to say, you know, we should do it as a bundle, but there's my boss sitting at the table and I took her advice and I wasn't going to, uh, not listen to that because that was important. And I just said, it's it's going really well, Bill. The one challenge is, I don't even know if I call him Mr. Gates, but uh, no, I think it was Bill. I, I said, uh, you know, it's tough because everybody is currently using DOS and they're using our competitors' products and we're asking them to make great changes, huge changes, costly changes. So it takes time. And he goes, yeah, of course it does. But Dave, we built DOS. We're the company who made that. And we're the company who made Windows, the evolution of the operating system. So it's just a matter of when and stick with it. And I'm like, wow, that's it was great advice. And he was so calm about it. Like I'm I'm trying to close deals and, you know, hit my numbers and, you know, win the war on on the competition. And and he was playing the long game. So it was really cool. So I did leave there after a couple of years and I started at Fairlawn and I didn't become Alex VP overnight. I worked my 
butt off. So I started in sales at Fairlawn and I, I did really well in the Southwest region, then went into the Northwest region and it was at headquarters. And that was my dad's advice. He said, look, if you really want to advance your career, you got to work out of the headquarters of the company because that will give you exposure to the executive team. Great advice. Love you, dad. Thank you, dad. My dad passed away three years ago and he was always my mentor. And so I took that advice and I moved my, my family, which at the time was my wife. We had just gotten married and we moved to Northern California. So now I'm in Silicon Valley. And, and so to answer your question, how did I get to become a VP? I'm now in an environment where they want my ideas. It's a young startup. They welcome ideas. They want to bring about change because there's no history. There's no process. There's no big company that has to like, you know, like a cruise ship and just turn it. You know, it's hard to do. So that was a better environment for me. And I flourished there. I was there nine and a half years all the way from, you know, uh, like 1989 uh, to uh, 1998. And so when I left in 98, that's when I started my first company. And it was great experience to take a company public. Like I worked on the roadshow that we went on with the CEO and, you know, learned all about life of venture capitalism and what what they're what they're looking for and how to work with them and how to work with a board. So I got a lot of experience young in my career and just kept building upon that. Trying to trying to find your clients, find your customers, scale out everything in the business. And what was the most important thing for you that you were focusing on during that time uh, that really drove it to the point of, well, I think that company was later acquired, I I do yeah. believe. Uh, so yeah, we were, I was like the, I was like the Alexander Graham Bell of, of the internet. Uh, I came home one night uh, and my wife said, you know, this is 1999. So this is the dot-com era, right? And I'm, I've taken this company public and, you know, I've been there a long time. So was able to put enough away in the bank to take enormous risk. And I'm not saying you have to do that to take risk, but I was just, that was a situation. I was able to go work um, and, and take risk and whether it was a startup. Anyway, she said, Hey, are you going to play video games with my brother? And this is a really important point, right? It's listening for a problem to solve. And I said, yeah. Yes. And she goes, are you going to get on the phone all night? Because this is 1999. We didn't have cell phones uh, or, you know, the economics of what they are today. You know, cell phone calls were 30 to 50 cents a minute. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I'm yeah. like, yeah, we're going to play online. And that's, you know, 9600 baud modems. I can still hear the AOL connection sound. And I was like, uh, yeah. yeah, we're going to play. And she goes, well, I got to call my mom. And I'm like, well, if you call your mom, it's like an hour conversation. She goes, I know. Why don't you figure out a way to talk over the internet? And that just like echoed. And I'm like, that's a brilliant idea. There's, there's nothing that enables a video gamer uh -huh. to talk with other gamers. So reached out to some guys that I knew. And the game developer conference was going on in San Jose. About a month later, we all met up started coding. Uh, and so your question is, what, what were we focused on? Number one was getting the minimal viable product out the door. Can't stress that enough because you can build anything, right? Work hard enough, except maybe a time machine, but even that maybe somebody's working on. So we had to get the minimal viable product done so that we could start getting customers. If we tried to build this, you know, fully robust platform, what if we had missed? What if we had been wrong and nobody wanted it? So we got the product out the door very quickly. And then we started getting users. And that's the second priority, right? Get the product out the door and get customers. Don't obsess about price. We gave it away for free, Alex. I mean, it was a free download. That was the age of, yeah. you know, freeware. And all I focused on was making sure that every download site like download.com and ZDNet and all these were featuring our 
application and we had millions of people downloading what was called Roger Wilco was the product uh, voice chat, the very first voice chat for video gaming. So I'm sure even what you and I are doing right now and every Xbox and all that has some semblance of our technology going way back then. And we just get customers and, and the customers really helped us create value for the company. And we sold the company a year later uh, for $25 million, uh, you know, which we thought we were heroes at the time. Skype sold for like $4 billion a few years after that. So I guess we weren't that smart after all uh, and learned a lot about acquisitions. Um, so some great lessons about selling your company early on in my career. And then after that, I went back into B2B. And I was taking all the experience I had in digital marketing from this, you know, startup where we, you know, made our product, delivered our product online, supported our customers online and the work that I've been doing at Natopia slash Fairlawn. We we rebranded the company to Natopia. So all that online marketing experience that I got in the early 90s and then the startup gave me the foundation for doing digital marketing and B2B. And that's where, you know, to accelerate to where we are today, I was at Ellie Mae. Uh, running marketing for them and bringing their product to market and putting all their digital marketing infrastructure in place. And so I was was doing that and I uh, went to a mortgage conference and having great success there after three years. And uh, Tony Robbins was there and he was up on stage and he was talking about Mrs. Fields. And he said, you know, Mrs. Fields had a recipe for success. And And Alex, what do you think the recipe was for what? I don't know, but uh, I'm a big fan of Tony, so I'm sure it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a good lesson. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was for everyone. Always says her cookies, and I'm like, yeah, the cookies. And he goes, no, it's not for the cookies, everybody, because anybody can make a cookie. She knows how to scale her franchise business. That's what she yeah. knows how to do really well. And he goes, write yeah. down on a piece of paper something that you know really well. Uh, yeah. And I wrote down how to use marketing automation and you know digital marketing and so he said now think about whether you want to keep doing what you're doing in your life or you want to go take that recipe and teach other people it and that yeah. was where dimension came from so i i left that conference and had that piece of paper and if you want to talk about the rest of the story we can but that's what yeah. took me on the path to go start dimension and it's hard to believe it's 12 years later and took enormous risk you know quitting my job to to start the company uh and it's been a tremendous journey it sounds like quite the journey. Um, so I always like to consider and kind of um, pull, I guess, comparisons from you know where we are now. Um, if you look out at the marketing landscape and the martech landscape, even compared to 20 years ago, um, 10 years ago, um, you mentioned something about uh, how early on um, with your first venture, you know, you were giving away the product for free, obviously premium, that strategy um, is used in almost every company now as a, a stage in, in that overall marketing funnel. Um, I mean, what like what are we doing now, I guess, in present time that is different or better or maybe even, you know, not as good of a strategy as, as what we used to do 20 years ago, I guess, just to compare the landscape and how things have changed in marketing for organizations of any size, I guess I'll let you decide that. Sure. Um, what's, what's changed. And uh, it's, a, it's a phenomenal question because it, it, uh, it enables, you know, me to say many different things, right? What's changed. Cause I often go out and speak about change and agents of change. And this is the thing that I'll share, especially given probably how many entrepreneurs and business people are listening to the program is it is the end of the 10 year business plan. 
Like my, my biggest thing to recommend in today's day and age, and I kind of was saying it like get the minimal viable product out the door and get customers, you know, your business plan, the most you can see a horizon of like one to three years. Now, I'm not saying like if you're like Tesla, because I mean, bringing a car to market is going to take years and a huge investment. But like if we're just talking about tech and SaaS for a minute, right, bringing technology products into market, right? How fast after Alexa was introduced as a, you know, smart speaker, if you will, was competitors brought into the market. Do you think they were going to have competitors that fast? And, you know, when you think about a business, maybe even your business, like, do you have the next five years mapped out? I mean, 12 years ago, there wasn't even an iPhone and that's 12 years. So if the world is changing as fast as it is, and you've got all this cloud infrastructure where if you and I wanted to come up with a product idea today and have it in market in days, we could do that. All the infrastructure is there for us. We just need the idea and time. Like it's very easy to start a company. And that means that the the competitive landscape is so different. So I think the thing that's changed in business most dramatically, especially since, you know, my dad who worked for the federal government his whole career, um, you know, and then early on in my career is we're just at such a rapid pace of change that you have to be as agile as you possibly can be and follow a direction instead of necessarily a well-documented plan. If you want to, um, you know, help people in certain countries and, and end famine, get started on that and go in that direction and see where it leads you if you work hard, as opposed to figuring out every single detail of how you're going to get there and what it's going to take, because you, you don't know the answers and change things that are going to happen that you just completely unexpect. And you've got to be able to be agile and pivot and respond to it. So, um, you know, in your work overall as an advisor, I understand you're an advisor to lead space, open prize, engage you, ping pilot. Um, you know, what, like what, what marketing challenges, um, do you find companies come across in, in the modern day? Um, just to shift and, and focus more specifically on that. I understand that as a founder, uh, you know, or in, in any department, uh, in a startup, you need to be able to, uh, pivot. You need to be able to, um, you know, not only pivot with your own strategies, but um, also pivot to what other parts of the organization are doing. And obviously, as a, um, as you know, CEO of Demand Gen, and as a team of consultants, you've been helping companies pivot and, and navigate the complexity in marketing for a long time now. But um, I guess broadly, um, what do you find the biggest challenges are, you know, where, where you kind of are able to say, you know, where we can, we can really get in here, get our hands dirty and and solve this problem. What, what do those challenges typically look like? Sure. I, you know, um, as you know, Alex, I, I do a podcast as well, which is demand gen radio. And on that podcast, one of the episodes I did last year was about fickle marketing. And so these companies that I advise, what, what the podcast that I talk about, uh, where I talk a little about fickle marketing is them not sticking to their messaging and their, their value proposition. And I mean, to use my example, when I started uh, Roger Wilco with these guys, we decided we were going to do voice chat for video gaming. That was our focus. This was a, you know, it, it wasn't Skype. 
it, I mean, Skype didn't really exist. I don't think back then. Again, I think we were the first voice chat product or pretty close to it, but we were certainly the very first voice chat system for video gamers. So that was our beachhead. And that's what we became very good at. So all of our marketing, all of our messaging, our brand, our look and feel really appealed to gamers and the feature set and capability and messaging and where we marketed was all very gamer centric. Uh And what I see these companies doing when I advise them is, you know, they, they may feel like they have this Swiss army knife. So they want to go out and tell all these different markets uh, about their product and platform, as opposed to just really conquering the very first hill and then spreading out from there. So, you know, in one sense, I'm saying a few minutes ago, you know, don't have a 10-year business plan and be agile. But you also hear me saying, don't try to be everything to all people. Like go really take the hill and then think about where the next place to conquer is. Because like, I'll give you an example, ABM, account-based marketing, right? As soon as that became a very hot topical acronym years ago, uh, people started hanging that on what their product does. It's like, hey, let's jump on the bandwagon and say we have an ABM solution. Well, you had a predictive solution a month ago. Now it's an ABM solution. And then I see some of these companies pivoting and saying, now it's a CDP, a customer data platform solution. So if every year you're changing your positioning about what you are, then how does anybody ever get attached to your brand? And it's really important to just establish your brand and then um, grow from there. One of the best books I ever, ever read in marketing early on in my career was from Al Reese and Jack Trout. And it was the 22 immutable laws of marketing. And, and the law number one was be first. Whenever you can go to market, be first. So, you know, if you're the first soda, you're, you're the first cola. And then law number two is if you can't be first, define a new category to be first in, which is I'm the first uncola, you know, if you're seven up, right? So, but if you try to be all things to all people, uh, you, you spend a lot of marketing dollars inefficiently and and you really open yourself up to a lot more competition as opposed to one that you can you can build upon. So that's 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 what I advise a lot of these guys on today is their go-to-market strategy and their messaging and positioning. And I just have to almost put like a harness on them to prevent themselves. And and by the way, do you yeah. know why they're trying to go into all these different markets? Because the board who sits in their yeah. office maybe once a month or once a quarter from the outside is looking at all this landscape and opportunity and tells yes. them go conquer it all. And so the board who isn't running the day to day is leading them when, when really it's, it's not necessarily the best advice. So, I mean, we, we very much live in a time where I think everybody is looking at, you know, what's the next flashy new technology? What's the, what's the new thing that we can, we can tap into, you know, in a world of blockchain and AI and, uh, things constantly developing. Um, I mean, how do you how do you pick how do you pick that um, you know that core thing that you're going to shape your brand around? You're going to shape your your service strategy around customer success, whatever it is. That experience that you kind of give um, your customers. I mean, you know, in a situation where what you're currently doing is maybe not working, and you want to pivot, um, or on the other hand, when you're starting to form that. Um, that brand and uh, that kind of go-to-market strategy. I mean, how do you how do you really dial into something that's going to be valuable and and useful uh, overall? Sure. You know, it, it's interesting because I don't think it's necessarily the product or the service. Like, I think that 
is relevant and it's important. I mean, people are not going to buy air. They buy water these days and it's more expensive than gasoline. Go figure. But, you know, you have to deliver something of value. What I want to stress, though, is I think what matters most, in fact, I know what matters most in this day and age are two things. One is, and it's the most important, is the customer experience. So if you have the best product in the world, and even if it's well-priced, but your customer experience is terrible, you're going to fail. And, and the customer experience has to exist throughout the sales process, the marketing, customer service, support, everything. You know, you have to deliver a, an incredible customer experience in today's day and age. The bar is so high. The expectations are so high about what consumers, and I mean consumers in any form, B2B or B2C, customer experience matters most. And it will overcome inefficiencies with your product if it's really excellent. So if, if customer experience, it's like a math formula, is greater than or equal to expectations plus value. Let me say that again, right? Your, if your customer experience is greater than or equal to the value you provide plus their expectations, then you will have a customer for a life or for a very long time. So that is absolutely critical. The second thing is with mind is it should be focused around ease. And, and you know, like you're making someone's job or life easier, right? Uh, Uber did that, right? They said, God, getting in the back of a smelly taxi cab where you're locked in like a caged animal experience um, there's got to be a better way to do that. And they looked at the technology that's available today and smartphones and GPS and the democratization, democratization of labor and boom, yeah. there's Uber. So great customer experience combined with ease. And so very, very powerful, right? And uh, I think those two things matter most in the world today. Like if you can develop a product that saves people time and money, those, those ter terms have ever been around, but really makes their life easier. Great focus on that, see who else is doing it. Can you do it better? And then whatever you do, make a five-star customer experience. Because if you don't, you're going to get two stars or three stars uh, or one or none. And people are not going to buy your product because it's, we're crowdsourcing reviews like never before. That's interesting, David. Um, where does, where does failure play a role in, in all of this? I mean, you know, we try to do these things. We could follow kind of your, your framework and your playbook for, for building a great company, but you're going to fail and you're going to fail hard. And I think, um, uh, you know, that's obviously important in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, where, where in your career have you experienced failure that really helped you drive success and maybe where have you seen it with, with others as well, uh, as a, as a driver where you're, you're learning lessons that allow you to really grow and scale in the long term. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, failure is the greatest lessons of life. I mean, if, and I don't mean to sound really cliche about that. It's, I'm, I'm processing back over decades of my life and periods of my life when I've experienced great failure. For example, I got fired from my very first job pretty much on the first day because it was the second day that I came in that they fired me. Um, so whatever I did on the first day, right, led up to me getting fired on the second day. And that getting fired, I was like 17 or 18 years old. I was working for a magazine in Los Angeles and I was um, 
really excited to be in their marketing department. And so I got fired because they had a consultant who handed out on day one to the team a survey. And I was actually taking a survey class in college. So I'm all excited, right? I'm this entrepreneurial, lean-in type of person. And I just shredded the survey um, on the break. And she said, hey, I'd like to get everybody's feedback on this. We're thinking of sending this out and doing a customer satisfaction survey. And so like it had things like, what's your age? 18 to 21, 21 to 25. And I'm like, ooh, if you're 21, which one do you check? That's called, it's not mutually exclusive. And like all this stuff in my class, I'm like, this is so great. I'm going to be able to help her so much with this because I've been learning all these things. And I mocked it all up. We had the meeting and she said, okay, anybody have any feedback? And, you know, now today I, I know really what that question is like from a consultant who's in a room, uh, which my answers should have been done differently and said differently. But of course I was all excited. And so the next day I walk in and they said, you know, Dave, this is probably not the right role and right, right place for you. And I said, what, what happened? And they said, oh, maybe you should run your own company someday. And that's like the only thing they said to me, which I mean, for your question to start there and for me to have so early on in my experience, two things. Yeah. One, one I didn't listen to until much later starting my own company, but I learned, oh, you know, don't be a know-it-all, especially on day one in a company. Um, think about your audience and how to communicate with that audience, right? This is someone I reported to, not someone I should be making look like they're incompetent if they're a hired consultant. Uh, and so what a great lesson, Alex, right? And so remember at Microsoft, I approached my feedback differently with my boss, Diane, who was a great manager and just had a one-on-one conversation and asked, instead of pushing my ideas, it was like, what do you think of this idea? Like, is this a good idea? And it allowed her to be manager and leader and tell me whether it was a good idea or not, as opposed to like, I don't think we should sell this way. We should sell this way now. And, you know, so that was, what if that didn't happen early on in my career? Would that have cost me a more important job or prevented me uh, from success? So that was a great, great lesson. Uh, and, uh, you know, failing in marketing, right? You've got to fail fast and try again. There's, there's no perfect science to marketing. There's no perfect science to selling. Sellers know all the time that you got to have a lot of at-bats to win and you just keep improving your game. So anyone who fears failure is actually afraid of success because you won't get there unless you fail. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great insight. So some of these some of these principles uh, that you learned early on that you've kind of carried with you, how do you instill those in in your team? How do you, you know, instill those in a company that has 100, 200 plus people in it and from being a small organization to to scaling to that size? How do you continue to kind of instill some of these values around creating a customer experience, a brand experience, learning from failure? and whatever other principles into your organization at the size that it is now. Creating a culture that, that allows failure, encourages it. Um, I remember uh, one of the guys on my team wore a shirt to our last uh, leadership meeting and it, it said, um, I can't remember exactly what the shirt said, but it was like the theme of the shirt was um, no fear of failing, you know, and it was so great for him to wear the shirt because in the previous leadership meeting that we had, I could tell like he was so resistant to change and coming up with new ideas. And I said, you know, you've been running your department for years. Why are you so hesitant to keep things the way they are and not branching out? He goes, because everything's going so well. And I go, but 
it won't forever. It, you have to keep evolving and changing your services. Mm-hmm. And and what I've learned as a as a CEO and as a leader for so long is that there's like you have this fight or flight instinct where it's in our DNA, right, Alex? I mean, you launched a podcast, right? You could have talked yourself out of that so many different times, right? But you didn't. And what happens is because we're wired biologically to avoid risk, what happens when we start to think of a new idea and get excited is all of a sudden doubt and uncertainty creeps back in and tries to talk us out of it to protect ourselves, to save ourselves. And it is at that point when we need to tell ourselves, no, I'm not going to talk myself out of this. I'm going to move forward. You know, unless you're jumping off a bridge, you're doing something really destructive in your life. Why did you think of the idea in the first place and ask yourself why you're talking yourself out of it? I bet it's fear. Yeah. Yeah. Seth, uh, Seth Godin, uh, it kind of reminds me of something he says. It's called the lizard brick brain. It's uh, it's there to kind of remind you um, when you're about to go into something scary, but it, it's also telling you you're on to something. You should move towards that. I think it's a powerful concept. And uh, I think it, it really does play a role in uh, the decisions we make. Uh, but overall, do you like? Do you still come across those those moments even now? You know the success that you've had in your career, uh, running a very successful organization, working with uh, some of the world's biggest brands, um, like Apple and uh, brands like that. Like who? Like do you, do you still come across that feeling where you want to? You're gonna thinking of pursuing something. Maybe it's something new or a new strategy, but, but that fear still pops up, or is it? gone for you. I mean, no, you you know, again, I'm, I'm as human as everyone else. I think it's a great question. So let me just lean in and be vulnerable. I, I get afraid all the time. I get scared all the time. I doubt myself all the time. I'm, I'm human. I mean, I remember right before I started this company, my daughter was diagnosed with type one diabetes, a chronic health condition that she has for the rest of her life. In fact, today, is her 21st birthday. So let me tell you how the story at least ends or gets to this point. She is a happy, healthy, beautiful girl. But at that time, Alex, all I wanted to do is talk myself out of the business. And and I went to dinner at a restaurant in Danville and I had dinner with Todd Duncan. And, and Todd's you know best-selling author, great mentor. I was blessed to have him in, in town after spending two weeks of you know, children's hospital and and learning everything I needed to know about nutrition, diabetes to, you know, help my daughter stay alive. And we had dinner and I told him about the business and I was really excited about it, but I was also telling him what Audrey had just happened. And he, and he said to me, he says, what are you doing? What are you going to do? And I said, I just don't think it's a good time to start the company. And he goes, really? He goes, you seem so confident about it. You seem so excited about it. I go, I am, but I mean, what if I don't have medical what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And Alex, you know what he said to me? He goes, Dave, can I ask you a question? Are you going to blame Audrey for the rest of your life for not starting the business? Because that's what I'm hearing. You're just afraid. And I'm like, well said, my friend. And I quit the next day and started the company. And to this day, 12 years later, I wake up every morning. I have meetings during the day where I have ideas or want to pursue something and think, is that the right thing to do? And I remember something that Mel Robbins, who wrote a book, The, the Five Second Rule, um, she's basically said, you know, in that five seconds, don't talk yourself out of it. 
because that's what's going to happen. After five seconds, it's uh, maybe I shouldn't. This is a bad time. Let's not go in this direction. And she just kind of just snap your fingers and just just do it. And so, you know, here I'm telling you that some of the best lessons in life, the best lessons that you get reward is failing. So if you don't pursue something, you're robbing yourself of a chance to fail and learn and grow. And if you have enough at bats and take enough risk and do enough stuff, you're going to have an incredibly fulfilling and rewarding life. And so, yeah, I, every time I give a keynote presentation, I'm backstage, I'm probably listening to Eminem, lose yourself. Like I'm, I'm amping myself and getting ready. And why am I doing that? Because I want to, you laugh. It's true. Uh, I want to, I want to be prepared. I want the adrenaline flowing because adrenaline and fear prepares you for the challenge, right? That's where we get afraid because when we were in the forest, right? And, and bears and lions were, were creeping around or dinosaurs, even for that matter, we needed to be prepared. So that's what fear brings is that, that adrenaline and that energy to prepare you for the situation. And so don't, yeah. don't be afraid of it. Welcome it because that's your body getting ready for battle or for the game or for a meeting, whatever it is. And just, just welcome it and embrace it. Yeah. I, uh, I think, uh, and thanks for sharing that with us, David. That's it's really powerful. I think driver for, um, for some of the success that you've had, I can see how it would be. Um, I, uh, I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, we all have something, we all have something that um, we've went through while running the business or before running the business, you know, on, on the personal end where it would have been easy to give up. It would have been easy to, you know, just say that this isn't the right time. Like, like you could have said, um, instead of, you know, leaning into the opportunity and, and going on to build something, you know, when you go through that, I think you, you picture or you try to envision, you know, 20 years from now or 10 years from now, you know, when I, when I build something great and have, you know, a lot to share, um, you kind of, you kind of picture yourself, you know, giving those speeches and giving back and, you know, after the work is done. Um, so for you, I mean, like, when did you really get to the point where you kind of thought to yourself, um, okay, like, you know, I've done some good things. I can, I can, like, as an entrepreneur, you're always uncomfortable. You're always looking for the next thing. But when did you really start to feel proud of what you had done? And, um, you know, when you, when you gave those first couple of keynotes or, or really started to put your, your story out there, maybe, maybe talk about that time. Cause I think we all kind of dream about, um, you know, being able to look back on the grind and say it was worth it and, and start to give to, um, you know, the community at large as well. It's really, it's really interesting, Alex, you asking me that question, even just asking me to be on the podcast, because I think you associate, you know, me with success and stories. And yet, if I'm completely vulnerable and open with you, I'm never satisfied with my performance. I don't know yeah. if it's a sickness. I don't yeah. know if it's uh, how an entrepreneur or someone who's as driven as me is. When I saw Hamilton in New York, I was blessed that my wife encouraged us to go see that early on before tickets were outrageous with Lin-Manuel and the cast. And there's a song in that called Never Satisfied. And when that song was being sung and I was sitting there in the audience, I just kind of teared up a little bit because I was like, oh my God, that's me. Like I'm never satisfied. Uh, I gave two keynotes last week, two keynotes, one in Disney World for five, 600 people. Another one, Las Vegas, with with a day in between, and you would think that would be the best 
week for me because I love going and inspiring people and talking to people. One was on the power of storytelling and one was about change in your organization, right? People came up to me at Disney World afterwards and said how great it was, how wonderful it was. You know what I kept thinking? Could have done better. Could have done better. I should have done this or I could have done that. Now I thank them and I genuinely was so appreciative of people giving that feedback because sometimes people won't walk up and say, hey, I loved it. And I always ask them, thank you so much. Was there anything in particular that you can share? Because I want to know what they got from it. But no, I mean, Alex, I, I think it's a it, it's either a healthy or unhealthy uh, illness mentally that just keeps me so driven. And it's something that I struggle with because you know, I built a company. We've been on the Inc. 500 twice. We've worked, as you said, with yeah. like 500 companies, the best of the best companies in the world, employed hundreds of people over the years. Yeah. And just even last week, won an award for partner of the year by Adobe, right? And yeah. now I'm thinking... What do I do this year? How can I top that? How can we be even better? How can we grow more? So maybe that's the entrepreneur's dilemma. I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't get down on myself for it. I just look at it as like I'm ready for the next uh, next challenge, and I'm going to go rise to the occasion and, and crush it. So, so on that note, um, what is next? Uh, do you have any any grand plans for where you'd like to kind of head from here? Yeah, you know, I'm. I turned 53 last year. And so I'm at this point in my career where when I do take a pause, you know, my daughter turned 21 today, right? That, that's a major milestone, I think, for a parent because you no longer have kids, even though she's always yeah. going to be my little girl. I have one 23-year-old, one 21-year-old. So I've raised two healthy, successful girls. One of them is working. One of them, Audrey, is going to graduate college in a year and a half. And I look at the company and, and I feel blessed that we've had all the success that we've had. So I'm starting to think about what the next decade looks like for David. You know, what, mm-hmm. what do I want to yeah. do with the company in terms of next? Because we've conquered and, and achieved so much. And what I want to do, my dad, I said, you know, passed away three years ago. My dad worked uh, into his 80s and he, and he loved work. So I'm never going to stop working, Alex. I'm never going to start stop creating and outputting something, whether it's for money or not, who knows. But, you know, for me, what I get charged up most about, which is why when you said, hey, Dave, would you do a podcast with me? I'm like, yeah. I mean, did you, did you feel any hesitation? Like what I really get energy from is, is teaching and coaching and inspiring people. And I would say to anyone listening to this podcast, um, go to LinkedIn, search for David Lewis, find me, you know, I'm the CEO of DemandGen connect with me on LinkedIn and read the things that I post because I'm just out there to help educate and inform people. And I want to keep doing that. So I know I'll keep doing that in what form factor. I don't know, but coaching, teaching, inspiring is, is what um, I get. I get tremendous reward by giving. It's like Winston Churchill said, you, you make a life not by what you get, but by what you give or something as poetic, more poetic than that. But that expect to see me keep doing that. So, um, this, like, can anyone do what you've done, the success that you've had? I mean, do you think that there was something innate in you that, um, you know, drove you in this direction and allowed you to, to see the success that you've had or, um, you know, is it, a, is it something else? Is it, is it something you can learn? Is it something that you can kind of pick up along the way to be able to grow companies and, you know, put, put the value into the world that similar to what you have? I'll give you two answers. It's a yes answer and a no. So can anybody do what what I've done? No. Can anyone do what I've done? Yes. (laughs) The difference is it depends on the person, not what I did. So what I mean is 
I, I didn't invent a time machine. I'm no genius. I don't have yeah. unlimited wealth. There's nothing about David Lewis and what I did that can't be replicated by someone else. That, so yes, anyone can do this. Who can't do it is the person who's lazy, who's not willing to take yeah. risk, who doesn't take to heart what we said earlier, which is whatever you do, ease someone's life, make their job easier, make their life happy. You know, whatever you're going to do, help yeah. the world, lean in there, be, be external focused and deliver an amazing customer experience. If you do that, you, you can do what we've done. Um, but if you're on the couch and you're not driven and if you're a 40 hour a week person and, or if you read the book uh, by Tim Ferriss, four hour work week and you, and you're just trying to take shortcuts in life, yeah. No, anybody who's done really successful in their career, but I, you know, jobs, I, I, I tried to quote Churchill, but I, I, I won't, I won't try to quote jobs, but I know there's a video online search on YouTube where he says, once you realize the world has been created by no one smarter than yourself, you can, you can do anything. And I, however he said it as poetically as Steve would, I truly believe that, that, that we are all gifted with incredible physical and mental abilities, it's what we do with them. So, um, you know, some people do pour themselves into it. Some people do put in the 80 hour weeks. Some people do put, put all of their, you know, their abilities and their skills into, into the goal at hand and they still, and they still fail. And there's obviously failure you learn from and failure that kind of stops you from moving forward. But what would you say about the people that put everything into it? Maybe you have a a startup that runs for three years and it just doesn't find the traction or, um, you know, maybe you don't even get to that point. What can you, what can you say about, about, um, you know, putting everything into it and it, and it not working out because I'm sure there are people that don't end up achieving some of the outcomes that you have. Well, one thing is, I mean, do have balance. I don't, like I said, I don't believe in the whole um, hustle porn to the point of, failing and exhaustion, uh, physically, um, that's not healthy and that's not sustainable. Life's not a sprint. So definitely make sure that there's some level of balance, whether it's meditation, yoga, physical exercise, time with friends, time with family, you, you've got to have the scales be somewhat balanced. If they're unbalanced for too long, you'll either burn out or feel pretty unfulfilled, you know, and, and just in case, what you work on doesn't lead to the kind of success that you wanted, you can't get back those years. So don't, you know, don't miss a lunch with friends. Um, don't, you know, skip vacations mm -hmm. with your, with your wife or significant other, um, you know, make sure that you enjoy life as life is going along. Um, and then, you know, to your question is, I mean, if you end up failing and you tried something, I mean, the odds are I mean, I think when we got to like 10 million in revenue, people had said to me, or I think there was a 1 million is like, Hey, do you know that only like 2% of all companies that start or 4% single digit low number ever achieve the kind of success you do? I'm like, I had no idea. Thank God I didn't know that going into it. Or I may have tried to more talk myself out of it, but you know, the odds are stacked against you succeeding. However, if you fail, what a great lesson, right? So, um, yeah. you know, just, just learn from it and then, and then build upon it. Yeah. Is there anything, um, is there a number one thing that that you would want to communicate to uh, entrepreneurs that you've learned along the way? We can we can wrap up with that, but just something that is a, a core principle for you that 
you find so important that we haven't touched on yet? Yeah, great, great questions, Alex. And thank you again for having me as we wrap up. Uh, it's the people, it's the culture. Uh, we talk so much about customer experience. We've we've talked so much about you know failing and and you know go to market with a minimal viable product and stick to your messaging and positioning. All those business things. What fundamentally matters most is your team and your culture. So establish core values and guiding principles and hire to them. Um, don't have nasty ugly people in your organization. There's no reason to not have the best talent uh, and create a culture that's just the greatest place to work. That's my stated goal. Every new hire at DemandGen sees slide number one on onboarding from me, which is my goal is to make this the best place you've ever worked. I tell them that up front and I work hard on that. And it takes a village. So people matter most. Hire great talent, create a great environment. That's that is the most important thing. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, but that's what matters most. Fantastic and well said. Uh, David Lewis, thanks for coming on the show. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure learning from you. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Uh, good luck with the podcast. Keep it going. Love to be back uh, someday. And, and again, if anybody's out there, would love to connect with me. Don't, don't hesitate on LinkedIn. Uh, look forward to continuing to expand the network and um, just, just wish you continued success with the podcast. I think it's great, great format, great listening uh, Great opportunity for entrepreneurs like me to hear from you and your guests uh, the journey that it takes to be successful. Glad you enjoyed it because uh, we certainly did. Thank you, David. All right. Take care.